You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. We are ending a sermon series today, three weeks on what does Easter mean? How does it impact our life? What is the reality of Easter? What does that mean for our real, real lives? As always, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to send them. I will get that. I said last week, hey, um, I didn't have any comments, and I was wrong. I had it on the wrong setting. There were multiple comments, so I'm going to make sure it's on the right setting this week. If you want to text, please feel free to do so. Uh, Let me know what you think, what's going on in uh, your world as we're listening to this text, listening to the Holy Spirit. But we're talking about the implications of Easter, and I'm saying that those are big. This is the turning point in all of history, and it means something for us. So we're asking the questions, what can we expect? What What is new? What does Christ call us to? And I just want to end on talking about resurrection life. We've talked about waking up. We've talked about light and life. Today I want to talk about resurrection life, and we're going to talk about that out of the gospel, I mean, uh, the epistle of Romans. If you've got a Bible in front of you, you want to read it with us, it's on page 863, or it'll be on the screen as well. Romans, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans 8. 863, starting in verse 11, going to 17. Paul is writing to the Roman church as he heads that way. One of his biggest, meatiest books in chapter 8 is maybe one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. If I can encourage you to memorize a whole chapter, I would have you start with at least Romans 8. And he starts, and we're starting in verse 11, right-hand side. The word begins, if. If the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your human bodies also through his spirit that lives in you. So then, so then, brothers and sisters, we have no obligation. We have an obligation. Holy smokes. We have an obligation. But it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. If you live on the basis of selfishness, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the actions of the body, you will live. All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back in again to fear, but you received a spirit that shows that you are adopted as his children. With that same spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children, but if we are children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ if we really suffer with him so that we can also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord for the people of God for today. So much good stuff about what it means that Easter happened and happened in our life. But as always, let's start with some bad news, huh? Yeah, let's just get it right out of the way. I don't know if you saw the bad news in there, but the bad news has to do with dying. Two paths before us. You can either be full of self or you could be full of spirit. But either way, you're going to be full of something, and one of them's not good. 
One of them leads to death, he said, and one of them leads to life. This is classic early Christian literature that there are two paths before us, light and dark, death and life, the narrow path and the broad path. You get to pick. You get to be a part of that process. Which one will you walk? Unfortunately, we have a society that encourages us to be full of self. A Pew Research Center report had Americans assess Americans. We determined what we were like, and we, we had some positive things to say about ourselves. Of course, the greatest nation on earth. Patriotic and honest. That's what we said about ourselves. Patriotic, honest. We're either very patriotic or fairly patriotic. We're either very honest or fairly honest. Number three descriptor of ourselves, though, Selfish. That's how we rate ourselves. When we look at our society, we say selfishness is uh, number three. Number four, which is uh, under honest, is smart. I like that we said that about ourselves. Patriotic, honest, selfish, smart, lazy. That's how we, those are the five descriptors we've given ourselves. Selfish. We have a society, when we look at ourselves, we determine that our society is characterized by being full of self, by encouraging selfishness. And so you live in a place that is asking you to be full of self. And I see it sometimes sounds good, some of the language we use, and I want to be very careful here because... uh, I don't think this is always bad. In fact, I think it's mostly good, but the way we frame it can be bad. Even when we talk about things like self-care, it's usually an excuse just to be selfish, right? When I talk about self-care, I'm like, I just want to lay in bed and eat marshmallows. And it's like, sometimes you've got to rest. I'm not saying rest is bad. And we should take times to have self-care, but sometimes it feels like an excuse in our society to just be more full of self rather than actually doing those recreational, those, those, those life-giving activities that help us connect more to our Creator and to become more aware of our own faults and needs, humility. We have determined that we live in a selfish society. Satan loves a life lived for the self. Paul tells us very clearly here that selfishness, or one that is lived in the flesh, is what the Greek talks about, leads to death. Satan loves it when we do this. For some reason last night I was thinking of this Lord Farquaad quote from Shrek. Uh, This would be Satan talking to us. He says, Some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice I am willing to make. You know what I mean? He loves it. Some of you may die, but it is a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Just encouraging us to live for ourselves just encouraging us to be full of self, but Paul tells us very clearly that path leads to death. There's good news. There's good news always when it comes to Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. How does the good news become real in our life? Head, heart, hands, as we always do, something for us to know. What is the information that God wants us to have? And then we move down to what is the transformation, the experience, the identity, the inward stuff? What is the inf- how does the information inform us? How does it apply to our life? That's the heart aspect. And then hands. What do we do with it? And today, I am flipping these two to your dismay. 
I know I get a lot of grief for when I flip them, but I just, it makes more sense when we flip them. So we're starting with heart today. And by heart, I want to talk about identity, our inward experience of the good news. I think everything else comes from this. And what Paul tells us is that we need to experience family over fear. That our new paradigm in this world and in our life needs to be family-focused, not fear-focused. He says, first of all, brothers and sisters, that's the language he's using. Christian siblings, that's who he's talking to. All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery that led you back into fear, but you received a spirit that shows that you were adopted as God's children. With this spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. And he goes on to say that Holy Spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. This is what the Gospel of John tells us Jesus came to do. That those who believe in Jesus, those who receive him, become God's children. God's children. This is the identity that God wants you to have. This is, this is what God wants you to experience post-Easter in Jesus Christ, that you are God's children. This is the identity. There's no other identity that is more important than this one for you to build your whole life on. I talk about this a lot and I'll tell you why. I'll just be vulnerable with you. I talk about this a lot because I struggle with my own identity. And so I just research and research and read God's scripture over and over again because my own worldly identity is in flux all the time and I'm trying to find an anchor. And the best thing that I can come up with in all my study and all my scripture reading is this idea that we're God's children. This is the most important identity that, that Jesus wants us to have that we can anchor our whole life to. And the world will tell you to invest all kinds of uh, identity in all kinds of other things. We ask people, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? We make work our identity. Here's something that I do. I'm on the school board. Look at me. I get to stand in the middle, and I got a fancy coat on. And everyone's like, I'm an elected official. I'm a politician. Man, there's sometimes I'm like, that's cool. How cool is that? And other times I'm like, you could have it. Yeah, I got another elected politician in here. They're like, hey, <laughs> not cool. Sometimes it'd be nice to put my identity in that. Sometimes it'd be nice to point to that and go, hey, this is something I'm doing in my community. It's a real thing. There's real measurable results. Every four years, there's an actual election where people have to vote, and I can get some kind of worth or assessment out of this. I literally can measure it. How many people like me enough to tick the box for my name? Throw it in the trash can. And this is me teaching at Chico State. Man, it, sometimes it feels nice when I'm at a dinner party and be like, I'm a professor. Because I don't know if you know, but sometimes it's hard to say that you're a pastor, especially when you're on airplanes and you're sitting next to people and they're like, what do you do? And you're like, I'm a pastor. And then now you've got to sit next to someone for four hours who does not want to be sitting next to you. <laughs> they're worried you're going to just blow that whole thing up conversationally. And you're going to be trying to bring some altar. They're like, oh, cool, headphones on, reading a book. Sometimes I'm like, I'm a part of an organization that loves its community and just tries to do some good stuff. They're like, no, but what do you do? Well, we read an old book. We're really into, like, old literature. <laughs> so sometimes I get to be like, I'll do some professoring at Chico State. And everyone's like, that's wonderful. How cool is that? Um, I could build a lot of identity out of that. Uh, I'm not sure it's very fruitful. We're having a lot of fun, though. Having a lot of fun. But 
uh, it's a very, I don't know, tenuous identity to build yourself on your own career. A lot of things can happen for you to end up not working, right? There's a lot of, you could get fired. You can run into some issues with your own physical health. There are just lots of ways where you could not be working tomorrow. And I've seen a lot of people wash up on the rocks of retirement because they built their identities on what they did, and then they don't do it anymore. And it becomes really hard because their identities struggle. They They can't figure out who they are and not connected to what they produce and what they earn and how they provide. It's not a good identity I'm not saying these things aren't important. I'm not saying they don't shape us. I'm not saying to get rid of them. I'm just saying this can't be a primary identity. It is taken away way too easily. Third identity I get to have, I get to be your guys' pastor. And that is one of the great joys of my life. And I plan on dying here. Like to the point literally that when we're searching for this new building, if you don't know, we're looking for bigger space. I'm like, can we put a cemetery on that ground so that I can just be buried right there? And you all have to walk over my grave to get to church to remind you, just to be reminding you from beyond the grave that you are but dust, and to dust you will return, and life is a vapor, right? This is one of the great joys of my life, but it hit me about two years ago that I'm not going to do this forever. And uh, there's going to be a day, hopefully, I get to retire. In this economy, I'm thinking like at least 91 years old, 92 (laughs) They'll let, me, they'll let me go. You all should fire me way before then. I'm just letting you know. But if you let me stick around, I will. But at some point, I'm going to stop, right? And even if, I mean, you know, Christians don't retire, retire. We just shift our focus from earning money to we get to spend more time doing kingdom work. But even if, when I die, God doesn't need any more pastors in heaven, That is a job that is gone. Worship leading? Matt's got a job for life. We're going to worship for eternity. My job's over when we get there. And so this cannot be my primary identity as much as I want it to be, as much as I think about it all the time. It consumes me. It obsesses me. I'm obsessed with it. Uh, This cannot be it. I'm I'm hoping someday, you know, that I get to sit sit under my own vine and fig tree and retire. This is an identity that your world encourages you to invest all of yourself into, and it is all-consuming. These are my three kiddos whom I love very much. Not in this particular moment when we were going for a hike and they were like, I'm so hot, I didn't bring any water. Um, But like in general, I love them very much. But there's a whole host of reasons why this is a bad place to invest all of your identity. Best case scenario, they move out and they have their own families. That's the goal. The goal is that they leave. Worst case scenario, something horrible happens, right? Some accident. Um, This identity can be taken away and we invest all of our identities into these types of things that can be taken away or be lost. Or again, in best case scenario, the scenario, they just move out and become successful somewhere else. It's not a great place to invest all of your identity. I know lots of people who have washed their identities up on the rocks of parenting when their kids move away. Just even middle of the road bad news about parenting is they might grow up and hate you or not want to be around you. Oh, that would be so heartbreaking. The last time I cried in therapy was I just was able to say out loud that like, I'm parenting hard now because I hope that I get to be friends later with my kids. 
because I believe that if I'm friends with them now, I cannot be friends with them. It's going to be a lot harder to be friends with them later, right? Life's going to be a little bit harder for them. If I, but if I'm hard now, maybe I can be friends later. And I just was weeping in therapy because, like, that's what I hope happened, but there's no guarantees. I don't know if I'm doing it right. Who knows? They're their own human beings. They get to make their own decisions. And some of those decisions could be to move forever far away. This is not is as, as healthy as it is to be a good parent. It's not healthy to invest all of your identity here. What about here? 19 years this year. 23 together. We'll be married 20 years next year. The love of my life. Right? They're, they're, even if, you know, heaven forbid Aaron was taken from me tomorrow, there'd be a part of me that would always be Aaron's husband, right? That would always be part of my identity. And I'm not saying don't have that part of your identity. But, 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 marriages don't last forever. Even the best of marriages, some people end up leaving earlier, right? You don't die at the same time. This isn't the notebook, right? Some people live a did I spoil it for you? It's 20 years old, everybody. They die at the same time. It's really lovely. Sad and heartbreaking. Best case scenario, you live a long, full life together and you love each other very much. But, right, some people live another 20 years without their spouse. That's a hard place to put your identity and then be and then have that taken from you. And even further, and even further, Christians say, till death do us part. Because Jesus says we're not married in the new heavens and the new earth. And so I don't know what the other side of glory looks like, but it might be an eternity without this woman. She may live on the other side of heaven for all I know. This would be a bad place for me to invest all my identity and then I got an eternity's worth of like, well, uh, I don't even know. She's just off having her own good time. Right? This is an earthly journey that we commit to. But it can also just be taken away from you in so many different ways. From abandonment, addiction, infidelity. Right, it just This is a place where you can invest a lot of identity and you are encouraged. Our society wants these people to be our total fulfillment. They want us to find all of our joy and love and peace in these human beings. And it's just a bad recipe for our own lives and identities, and I would even say for our own marriages. Paul wants you to build your life on the rock of Jesus and your relationship to Jesus. That is the only thing that will not be stripped from you. That there's no heights or depths, he goes into saying at the end of this chapter. Nothing, sword, famine, nakedness, not even... Uh, Death itself can take you away from Jesus Christ. This is the only thing that is forever. That there's nothing, nothing that can take you away from Jesus. You You aren't your accomplishments. You're not what you've done, good or bad. You're not what others have done to you. Everything, right? You're not what you post or prod or poke to provoke at others, to to give you some sense that you're worthy. You're not any of those things. You're the child of God. That's what Paul wants you to build your identity on. Everything on that rock that cannot be shaken. The unshakable foundation of this kingdom of Jesus. In fact, I I was thinking about this. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Maybe I'm saying this too strongly. 
But you get into Jesus' Easter kingdom thing by declaring that Jesus is Lord, and I think you thrive there, you stay there by realizing that you're a child of God. That's the journey of salvation, is going deeper and deeper into that identity of being God's children, daughters and sons of God. Okay? What does God want us to know then? With that experience, that identity, that reality, if you are children of God, then you are holy heirs with a huge inheritance. That's what he says. Look, but if we are children, then we're also heirs. We're God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ if we really suffer with him so that we can also be glorified with him. We talked about suffering last week, and that idea really is, is that just as Jesus went to the cross and then was raised, our life is going to look similarly, that we're going to experience the hardships that Jesus experienced, but then we also get to experience the Easter glorification that Jesus experienced as well. But the emphasis I'm hitting is that we're heirs. If we really are God's children, then we get to be heirs. God is our father, and Jesus is our brother. This is what he's telling us. Fellow heirs with Christ, and we are God's children. Fellow heirs with brother Jesus. Well, what does Jesus get? Everything. Hebrews 1-2. God made his son the heir of everything. You're fellow heirs with that. Guess what you get? Everything. Without all the hard work of Jesus. Yeah, he did all the hard work. You get to reap the benefits of it. Everything. A huge inheritance. From God our Father, fellow heirs with Jesus. There's a big event happening. Listen, this might be cheesy, but it made me think about the stuff going on in our world that reminds me of this concept of heir. Queen Elizabeth died, and her son's getting crowned. This, this, this crown is so gaudy to me. Look at it, it's so ugly. But he gets to wear it. He's getting crowned this Saturday. He's the heir apparent. She dies. He gets to be the heir. He gets to be the king. He has to do all the hard work. By the way, something like the oldest heir apparent. He's the oldest person to get to become king. He's waited his whole life to become king, and he gets to be king. Um, good for him. And then I was thinking, this is his little brother. Look, at that's us, right? Heir apparent. He gets all the benefits of royalty. He doesn't have to do any of the hard work of being king. We get to be inheritors of God's work in the world. We get to receive, as God's children, the good things that God has for us found in Jesus Christ. We are holy heirs with huge inheritance. One more story for us. I love this story. It's an old newspaper clipping from, that has to do with Orville, from 1880. Uh, from 1880, October 20th, 1880, out of Waco, Texas. I know it's blurry. It says, a fat take, so already wonderful. Waco, Texas, October 20th, 1880. Joseph Hamilton, a printer of Waco, has fallen heir to an estate which will amount to be about three million bucks. Two million to three million dollars? Does it? I think it's two, but it does look like three. Listen, it's between three million and three million, so somewhere in the range of that explicit number. That guy's the nephew of a guy named Horatio Hamilton, 
a rich miner of Orville, California, Butte County, who died last April. He has no heirs. Hamilton starts for Orville next week. There's so, first of all, in 1880, a fortune between $3 million and $3 million is, in 1880, $3 million? Number two, the reason I love this is because I think this is actually the American dream. Like, sometimes when we think about the American dream, we're like, work really hard, get a two-story house with a white picket fence and a German shepherd named Gabe or something. I don't know what it is. 2.7 children. That's what we classify. I really think it's that you have a long-lost relative that you don't know at all <laughs> who dies. You're not sad. You don't know them, but they don't have any heirs, and so they leave you a literal fortune. I think that's the real American dream. And uh, so that's one of the reasons why I love this. A huge, I mean, this is an insane amount of money in 1880. And it just falls in this guy's lap. We have some Hamiltons in church. Um, I hope you all are related. I hope some of this made it down to you all. May God have blessed you many generations later. <laughs> yeah. You're a billionaire. I had no idea. No. Uh, just fell in his lap. He did nothing to earn it but by family relation. It's a real fortune. All he's got to do is go pick it up. I think Paul uses this air language for a reason for us. And here's what I think it is. Because it, there is so many benefits to following Jesus. But I think at the rock bottom of it, Paul wants us to know in our bones that being children of God means something. It's not just something that God wrote down in heaven in some book and none of us get to see and just hopefully someday we get to enjoy the benefits of that. It means something right now. It has weight. It has meaning. It, it changes us in profoundly deep ways, not just on paper. We're not God's children just because God decided to flip the switch and now he decides that we're children now. It means something. It has meaning to it. It's real and it really matters. That's something about God's spirit in us makes us look like our father. In fact, 1 John will talk about... Uh, Similarly, it'll talk about how the spirit in us is like God's DNA. That God has deposited in us the genetic makeup of the divine so that we too can look like God our Father and Christ our brother. That this just isn't langu flowery language to try to be like, hey, isn't it nice to follow Jesus? That when we follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in us in a way that leads us to becoming more like Jesus. This is real. This is the inheritance that we have. This is, it makes us heirs with Jesus. It should shape us down to our bones. And this is what God wants us to know, that we get to be heirs with Jesus. Good stuff is coming because of Easter. That Easter is the first deposit into our inheritance, our eternal reward that we can experience right here, right now, because God's Spirit lives in us. What does God want us to do then with this information? As I'm wrapping up here, if you have questions or answers, feel free to send them. What do we do then? We have to live in the Spirit. 
And I feel like I've said this for like the last two months. So forgive me, but this is what God's word says. If it says it this much, I'm going to keep saying it this much. But he wants us to live in the spirit, knowing that the resurrection spirit brings resurrection life. It's not just some flowery language about how God's with us or that God's watching over us from far away, that God dwells inside of us. If the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your human bodies because that spirit resides in you, dwells in you. The God of the universe in the Holy Spirit lives in you, lives in you. The same one that raised Jesus from the dead surely, surely can help you overcome the issues in your life, the addictions in your life, the sin in your life, the brokenness in your life. If it can raise Jesus from the dead, it can give you resurrection Easter life that impacts you right now. Same spirit that raises Jesus from the dead resides in you. And so we got to learn how to walk in that life-giving spirit. What does it mean to live in the spirit? Because sometimes I don't know if we all have the same definition. And I'm not here to tell you that my definition is right, but I want to add some more clarity to what it means to walk in the spirit. What does it mean to live in the spirit? Sometimes I think, it, I think we think it means like we got to go into some kind of trance or we got to be, I don't know, sporadic or we got to be whimsical, like kind of like a woo-woo person. Do you know this phrase? I'm learning this phrase. I don't really know what woo-woo, and we're not against woo-woo. We believe in the supernatural, but like you don't have to be like, when I say in the spirit, I'm not saying you're sitting on your floor, you know, just like, I'm not saying you're going to some kind of sporadic, seizure-like, overwhelming of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying you're running up and down the aisles rolling around, though that is sometimes a manifestation of the Spirit. I'm not saying you got to be doing any of that thing you think of when you think of Spirit living. I don't think you got to live in such a detached way that you don't care about anything around you or any of the people around you. I don't think that's what it means at all. We talked about this two months ago when we were talking about fasting. When the Bible talks about spirit, it's talking about the way that we are composed from a biblical point of view, that there are three parts to you, that there's body, soul, and spirit. And Paul's encouraged, these things aren't bad, they're all good, they're who you are. But if you live only in one of them, it can, the bottom two, if you live only in those two, it will lead to bad things. It will lead to bad things. Your body is your body, you get it the physical part of you. Your soul is your thoughts and emotions and ideas and the you behind the body. And then there's this thing the Bible calls the spirit, and that's the part of you that connects to God. We believe all humans have all three of these, that they're made in the image of God, that they have a physical body, and that they have rational, emotional thought going on behind the flesh. But there's a problem when we only live in the body, when we only seek after the pleasures of this life that are constantly fading away, when we're just looking to feel good. There's a problem when we only live in our mind or in our hearts and we're just seeking after emotional experiences all the time or trying to get new and fresh ideas. It's not a great place to stay all the time. Paul's encouraging us to live in the spirit part of us, that part that connects with God. The verse I always think of when I talk about this is Jesus says, 
in John 4, I desire people who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus isn't saying, I hope you get to go into a trance at some point and experience some weird, sporadic situation. He's saying, I want people that aren't seeking after pleasure or people who aren't trying to seek an emotional experience or an intellectual experience. They're connecting with me on a spiritual level. And to make this more interesting, the Bible talks about how when we become followers of Jesus, we get the Holy Spirit mixed in with all that. So it's not just your spirit. It's your spirit shaped and formed by the Holy Spirit who resides in you, the God of the universe residing in you. And so when Paul encourages us to live by the Spirit, he's encouraging us to let that be the part of us that that guides us. It's the way in which we see the world. It's the way in which we experience God's creation and the people around us and our relationship with Jesus not seeking after what feels good, not seeking after the emotional experience, but walking through life at a higher level of living, shaped and informed by the Holy Spirit in a way that we let that that the image of God, the Holy Spirit in us be the primary way in which we are experiencing the world around us. Living by the Spirit is letting the Spirit and Holy Spirit be the way you see, live, and walk in the world. This is what Paul is telling us to do when he's talking to live by the Spirit. Not walking around in a trance. Not acting a fool. But letting that higher level, divine part of us where the Holy Spirit resides be the way in which we see the world around us. Again, not neglecting our bodies, not neglecting our hearts and emotions, just not letting them have the driver's seat of our whole life. And when you live by the Spirit, you get everything. You get body, soul, and spirit. You know what it reminds me of? Cheesy example again. Last night at midnight, I was thinking about this. I hope it resonates. The price is right. This is the showcase. You're bidding on stuff. What happens if you bid over the amount? You don't get it. That's living by the body. When you live selfishly, you die. You get nothing. What happens if you're the closest without going over? You win. That's cool. You win your thing. You know, maybe that's living in the soul. That's better than living in the body. You get to let your thoughts and emotions have a higher priority than your body. That's better than living just entirely in your body for pleasure. But what happens if you get the exact right amount? You get both. You get everything. I think this is what Paul's encouraging us to do. Sorry that was too cheesy. If, if you haven't stayed home sick as a child and watched Prices Right, then you don't get this. And your childhood was not as good. I apologize. But Paul's saying, don't live in the body, you lose. Living in the soul is better than living in the body, but it's still not the way that God wants us to live. When you live in the spirit, you get it all. You get, you get body, soul, and spirit. Live by the spirit especially one that is formed and shaped by the Holy Spirit who resides in you. Living in the Spirit gives us resurrection life. This is what he's encouraging us to do, is to let that part of us, the Spirit, Holy Spirit part of us, be the way in which we see and interact and live and walk in the world. I'm going to end with this story. This is uh, my wife's grandparents. And um, Bill passed away last May, and Sue just passed away on Friday, Grandma Sue. And um, 
The cancer had come back. Uh, the family knew that she was going to pass, and she knew that she was going to pass. And that was helpful when the family was going to say goodbye, because sometimes in these situations you say goodbye. Like my grandfather was convinced he was not going to die, and so that was a little bit harder. Sue knew she was going to die. And it was such a different experience from someone who followed Jesus and loved Jesus and knew she was going to go see Jesus. Lots of different ways that this was a different experience. And I just, I'm thinking about this and I'm talking about living in the spirit because I think in her final days, she was really just living in the spirit here. A couple examples. She just could not stop beaming about going to see Jesus and going to see Bill, her husband, who died less than a year earlier. That was real for her, you know? She's like, I'm going to see. Plus, she was like the youngest of 12 kids. And so everyone in her life had died, do you know? And there was just a joy about going to see these people that she has missed for a very long time. So real for her. Tapping into that spiritual Holy Spirit part of her that just knew this was real. Uh, other things happened too, but the final one was um, that I just can't stop thinking about was the family went to say bye to her on Tuesday. And she just kept saying I don't know why you're here today. I'm not dying today. I'm dying on Friday. And just before sunrise on Friday, we get the text that she passed. Just before. 547, the text came through. Grandma Sue just passed. Predicted her own death. Listen, I just told you we're not woo-woo, but kind of. I don't know how she knew. I have no idea. But she says, I don't know why you're all here today. Like, I'm dying, but I'm not dying till Friday. Wake up to the text. Grandma Sue just passed, 547. I mean, it just felt like it was a picture for me of living in the Spirit. I'm not saying you got to be able to predict the future, though prophecy is a gift of the Spirit. Just She was just so in tune with what God was doing, just talking about she couldn't wait to see Jesus, knowing that, that her time here was uh, definitely not living in her body, right? The body was not the priority for her at this end stage. A wonderful picture for me about what living in the Spirit might look like, at least little bits of examples here. And so just to sum this up, this is the implications of Easter for us based on this passage, that it means something deeply forming for our identity and self right here, right now. And you can, because of Easter, learn to walk in God's spirit in a way that brings absolute life for you. I'm going to take a couple questions and then I'm going to sum it up and we'll be on our way. I got one. Somebody says, isn't it a body, mind, spirit? Sometimes we do say body, mind, spirit. The Bible uses often, and, and that can work in that, that framework of body, soul, spirit because sometimes people associate soul and mind and there was a lot of Christian thinkers that, is, that assumed that mind was the, the highest function of soul. And so we could say body, mind, spirit, uh, but the Bible prefers to use the term body, soul, spirit. Great question. The difference between soul and spirit. Soul is the you behind. It's your whole self, not your body. It's your whole self, your, your emotions, your intellect, your, your rational thought. Um, the phrase I like to use to distinguish soul and spirit, 
soul is when I say, this is my body. This is my body. This is my hair. Who's my in that sentence? Right? That's one way that we can think about talking about the soul. And one more. The seat of the soul. Another great question. If I said seat of the soul, I might have been talking too fast. Uh, the Jews, the Jewish conception of soul uh, and self is that your heart was the seat of your... See, we, we point to our brain when we think about our thoughts. They thought about their heart as the place where they thought. And their emotions, a lot of their emotions came from their guts. We still do this, right? We call it gut intuition or something like that. And so they just changed the body parts but had the same ideas about thoughts. And so the seat of emotion is gut. The seat of thought is heart. Great questions. Thank you for asking. Here's my summary as we wrap up. I would be a bad pastor if I didn't tell you that Paul's got a bunch of ifs in here. That you don't get this just by being born. He says, if God's spirit lives in you, if anyone doesn't have the spirit, if Christ is in you, if the Spirit is the way, if by the Spirit you put to death the actions of the body, if you live on the basis of selfishness, you have choice. God has empowered you and encouraged you, died for you, but you have to, by faith and the grace of God, receive this gift. Like that Waco man setting off for that inheritance. He did nothing to earn it or deserve it, but he had to go get it. God has a gift for you, but you have to open it and receive it. You have to invite Jesus into your heart. Receive the Easter gift and promise. Declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that he was raised from the dead, Paul tells us. And then these promises are yours. But God's not going to force you or make you do this. And so I'd be a bad pastor to make you think that you just get this just because you're sitting in that seat, but there really is something for you to determine. Are you going to walk in the flesh and in the selfishness of this, or are you going to ask Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life? That is how we receive the Easter blessing and promise, become huge inheritors of this grand inheritance and become children of God by receiving Christ into our life. And when you do that, the good news is that because of the cross and resurrection, the same spirit that raises Jesus from the dead resides in you now and gives you that resurrection life. That spirit makes you and affirms in you that you are God's children, sons and daughters of God. And because you are God's children, this, this child identity of the Father becomes real. You get an immeasurable inheritance as fellow heirs with Jesus of this resurrection life. And with that, would you pray with me? Thank you, Father. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for the Holy Spirit deposited into our lives to transform us, to help us, to grow us. Would you help us to be awake to that reality if we received you a long time ago, would you help us to be awake to the reality that your spirit dwells within us and that can empower and encourage and equip us 
Help us to learn to walk in that spirit, that life-giving spirit. And Father, if we don't know you, and we haven't made that decision to follow you, would you convict us right now? Challenge us to take a look at our life and all the ways in which death is a part of it and how it is leading to death, how it is unfulfilling. There is not joy or peace in the midst of that. We have not experienced your love and our identities are not rooted in you in such a way that we are being tossed and turned by every wind and wave. Convict us now so that we may put our faith and trust in you and receive the promises that you have for us because of Easter morning. And Father, now as we come to this time of communion, the cup and the bread as symbols and signs of your body and blood broken and shed for us, would it be a place where we meet you, a place where we commune with you, that we connect with you, and may that connection be overwhelming, encouraging, or challenging. Whatever it is you have for us, will we come with expectant hearts to meet you in a way that is real and that really matters? And we give you praise and thanks for what you're going to do the rest of this day. Table Church, will you help me finish this prayer by praying the Lord's Prayer? Saying, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.